give yourself permission to think about what it is that you want. Unfortunately, female sexuality has been largely dominated by these expectations of, you know, uh, what to do to please your man. Um, and, and that's what we learned growing up is that our, our bodies are there for their pleasure. And what can we do to make ourselves more desirable and pleasurable for him? And not to say that that's a terrible thing to think about. How can I, how can I be of, uh, pleasure service to someone else, I think that would be great, especially if that's uh, reciprocated. But if that's all we're thinking about, then there is no space to think about what it is that we actually want. That is why so many women get stumped when a guy's like, what do you want me to do to you? That was Maisha Battle, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 146. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. On this show, my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic answers, and I can't give you a miraculous 10-day, six-step life hack plan for anything. Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) But as a recovering self-help junkie myself, I'm honestly so over that approach, and my guess is that maybe you are too. Maybe that's even why you're here. So no, that's not what this show's about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into meaningful topics. We talk about work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language, so there's your little warning for that, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way even when it's uncomfortable. So with this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener funded. How awesome is that? And that's made possible by incredible regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is, and will always be free. But if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, my hope is that you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. When you get over to Patreon, you'll see our current funding goal. And when we reach that goal, it means that every single person who works on this show will get paid. That includes me and my sound engineer, Adam Day, as well as every single guest who comes onto the show because that's my vision, for each of our guests to be paid for the time, energy, honesty, care, and emotional labor that they bring to these conversations. The budget won't be huge to start with, and will hopefully continue to grow over time, but higher rates will always be paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. Being able to pay all of our guests has been a dream of mine for a while now, because as you've probably heard me say before, I fully believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world where people get paid for the work they do, especially creative work, then that means it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio, even if it's definitely not the norm in the podcast industry. So please know that when you help to fund this show, you're using your money as a vote for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women, and you're voting to pay those folks for the entertainment and education that they so expertly provide for us. When you support this show, you're basically just saying loudly and proudly that these voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off limits due to fear or shame. 
And as a special thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I share my real life in real time. Oh, if you think it gets vulnerable and honest on the podcast, just wait until you start getting my emails. Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for Real Talk Live events and retreats. Also, 5% of each season's profits are donated to social justice organizations, such as Black Lives Matter, the Venture Out Project, and the Refugee and Immigrant Center for Education and Legal Services. So you can feel really good about that aspect of your pledge contribution to this show as well. Over on the Patreon page, you'll see that there are currently three different funding levels. There's an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, we even do live Google Hangouts together, and oh my gosh, those are so much fun. They seriously become something that I look forward to all the time. So once more, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Maisha Battle. Maisha is a certified sex and dating coach, writer, and speaker. Through coaching and her sex-positive podcast, Down for Whatever, Maisha provides accurate sexual information and encourages the quest for sexual satisfaction no matter a person's race, gender, orientation, ability, or age. More than anything, she empowers her clients, listeners, and readers to embrace better sex for a better life. In this episode, Maisha tells us why and how to clarify our sexual values, sharing plenty of honest examples from her own dating and sex life along the way. We spend the bulk of this episode doing a Q&A, where she answers five excellent questions that were submitted by members of the Patreon community. These questions dig into topics like, is it a good idea to sleep with your ex? Where can we find feminist porn to watch? How should I handle conversations about STIs? What can I do to get out of my head and into my body so I can enjoy the sex I'm having more fully? How can I get better at asking for what I want in bed? And so much more. I absolutely love Maisha's work and approach to sex and dating, and I hope that you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. All of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. Fantastic. We are good to go. Maisha, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me, Nicole. So it's been, what, like seven-ish months, I think, since I you think first so. came on the show. Um, and I would love to hear a little bit about what's happened in your work and life between then and now. Is there something that you <laughs> feel particularly proud of or excited about? What hasn't happened? Um, yeah, I think there's been a lot of developments for me. I'm obviously still working as a sex and dating coach. Um, but at the beginning of 2018, I started working from a fantastic space in San Francisco in the Mission District called the Assembly. And so now I am a member practitioner here. I'm actually recording live from from the space, beautiful space that I get to work from and see clients from. And also just to be a part of this larger community of women who are doing all types of work, who 
want to find a sense of community and support one another. So that's been a huge development for me professionally and community-wise is uh, you know, being a part of this space, which is about health and wellness. And I love that the founders also understand that sexual wellness is a part of a person's overall health and wellness. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can imagine too, with you doing the work that you do, obviously the work that you and I do is different, but this, the element of working from home alone, right? Like that can definitely get old and feel isolating. So I imagine being in that space with other people, even if they're not doing the same thing that you are, can feel really supportive and kind of creatively enriching. Absolutely. And I've had meetings here with other women that I've you know, either met outside of the assembly or who have been recommended to me um, or who have met me from doing events here that are coaches or therapists or doulas. Um, I've been in touch with people who you know, are working on their podcasts and themselves. So yeah, it, I think we're all here for a very common reason, which is that uh, we're very motivated for our own businesses, but that we kind of need that sense of connection and community within a kind of predominantly female space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've been thinking about this. A conversation that comes up often on the show is about sometimes the challenge of making friends as an adult or just finding community once you don't have the necessarily like circumstantial built in, you know, we live in the same dorm or we work in the same office, or if you're doing anything that's a little bit non-traditional or doesn't have that, that it can be more challenging challenging and therefore so much more worth it to either find these spaces or if something doesn't exist to like create the the thing that you need on your own, whether that's a small group of just a couple people, whether it's a book club, whether it's a co-working space, like being intentional about who you're in community with. I have, that's been a big goal of mine for the last mm, year or so. And it's made a huge difference. Absolutely. And you're right. It is difficult. I think also for women who work in male dominated spaces, sometimes that isn't even bigger challenge because um, you're working within a structure that isn't necessarily conducive to like how you want to be in your femininity. And so, so that can be very draining and exhausting in and of itself. So I've met women who are members here who, you know, they come specifically for the community building aspect. Like they come to events, they come for workouts because there is a workout space here, a fitness studio. Um, so they're, they're really trying to balance that, uh, <laughs> need for professional development in, you know, in that space, but also like that, disconnect from female friendships and knowing what the world is like outside of maybe their tech or finance bubble, which mm -hmm. is real. Yeah. So you just slightly mentioned professional development. So for you, either professional development or personal development, who's someone that you've been learning from lately? I always am learning from Anne Friedman. <laughs> She's um, the best, right? Ugh. Yeah. I think that I can sometimes become grumpy with where I am in my professional development. And I love how much Anne gives credit where credit is due. Um, she is, she's been a champion of my work. She's been a supporter from day one, I feel. And um, it's, I don't know, there's just something about being shined upon. Obviously she's a co-creator of Shine Theory, but being shown upon uh, as 
so, you know, from someone who I believe has such an amazing platform and such a far reach and who is so kind and so willing to raise up other women. Mm-hmm. So I've learned a lot from her and I've been inspired by her on many different levels along my creative and, um, and, and professional path. Yeah, I love um, her newsletter too. It's one of the only things like that that I pay for. <laughs> Same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, she's a Patreon supporter of mine, which is, uh, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, but, but that reciprocity I've always felt from her. Um, and I've always felt a kind of unwavering belief in what I'm doing in a way that, you know, yes, other friends have that for me, but I think it's different when you, you see like where she is and how respected she is in the world. Um, there's, there's a difference, uh, for me. I'm like, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's what I strive for. Yeah. So looking back over these last, whatever we said, like six or seven months, what's one thing that you have found challenging? Mm, I have re-entered the dating world and that has been challenging for me on a personal level, but it's also given me a lot of empathy for my dating clients So just seeing what's out there and how people are interacting, how people are treating each other in real life, on dates, treating me, (laughs) uh, it it has been a challenge, but one that I think ultimately has been enriching my life and helping me to clarify what my personal goals are. And like I said, build a tremendous amount of empathy. I mean, I already have a lot of empathy and compassion for my clients, but I think 2018, the landscape is pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, you know, my heart goes out to anyone who who's dating right now. And uh, it's been funny to to accumulate my own stories as I'm going through the process. This might be a strange question, but the farther along that you get in your work in the sex coaching, dating coaching space, how, what kind of effect do you think that that's had on your own dating and sex life? It's complicated because I think that I truly do believe for other people that there is a person, if not many people with whom they can live their life and have a fantastic romantic partnership in any way, shape or form that they want. Right. But that doesn't mean that I don't struggle with that belief for myself. And I think this goes for anyone who's in a helping profession. I've talked to many women who are business coaches and life coaches and relationship coaches and therapists. And um, some of that steadfast belief in in others doesn't necessarily extend to oneself. So I've been working on that. I've been um, taking moments to coach myself through these difficult or awkward exchanges and persevere knowing that, you know, I do deserve everything that I want and I have to be a champion for my own heart, which is a different position. It's easier to be a champion for someone else's heart, at least for me, because I just believe so much in other people and like the, basically the like resilience and like multitudes of possibilities for the human spirit. Um, so I do come to my work with that perspective. And I think this past year has been about incorporating those lessons that I've been trying to impart on others into my 
own dating life. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, why is it so hard to take your own advice? I think I like, <laughs> that's something everyone can relate to, right? <laughs> yes. And I, you know, to be fair too, I think that the, my style is very much encouraging people to be their authentic selves. So by no means do I think that the way that I'm doing me in the dating world is how everyone else should be doing dating, right? So it's been interesting too, because I've had people in my professional life be like, oh, is that what you would recommend people do? Like kind of judgy. Like, <laughs> can like, you give me an example? Um, I, I overtly hit on a, a friend, um, a friend of a friend because tipsy, whatever. And, um, and it was like, it was pretty aggressive in that sometimes is my style. It's always been my style. I, I'm a sex coach. Like I'm not shy about, um, flirting with people or letting my intentions be known. There's no mixing or like mincing words with me. It's just, it's very straightforward, but I know a lot of people aren't like that. So I think that my friend was a bit shocked to see that I was as overt with this person. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, so she called me out on it and I said, no, it's not what I would recommend a client do. It's what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's what I'm doing with my life. And so I do think that there is a lot of pressure when you're in this world to do everything right, do everything the best because of what you've studied and what you've learned and, the ways that you've seen other people do dating. But the fact of the matter is, is that there's as many ways to date. There's as many ways to have sex as there are human beings on the planet. So yeah, for me, I have my own style and that changes from however I'm feeling. And I think one of the things that's been, uh, good for me to see is that I do have these many sides that can come out and that I, I give myself permission to explore those different sides with different people who bring that out in me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, sometimes that might be read a certain way by people, but I have to be me. So. Yeah. When you said something else earlier, um, I think the phrasing you used was, I deserve to have everything I want kind of in this arena, which I think is A, a powerful thing to say. And it makes me wonder sort of where the line is between that versus like what you see as necessary compromise when it comes to relationships. Um, Anything specific that you want to talk about in there? Yeah. When I say that I deserve to have everything that I want, I think that that is also with this caveat that what I want will not necessarily take the shape that I think that it will. Mm, okay. So there's a, there's a flexibility built in there for me personally. And um, so when I think about my two main goals, which are to have a primary partner, long-term committed relationship, and to also start a family, I, at this point in my life, I'm 35, recognize that those two things might not happen with the same person, if that makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely Um, makes sense. So for me, it's about refining what it is that is actually going to be fulfilling for me in those those two goal areas and to not cut myself off from possibilities of those being those roles and those, um, that, that love and that need to be filled by different people in my life. Um, it's not so much about a checklist and one person must fit everything and I deserve everything on the checklist. 
it's about remaining super open to the things that make me feel really good <laughs> and like the things that people will bring into my life that make me feel like, oh yeah, no, this is the person that I'm meant to do this with, or this is the person who is going to be a great father for my kid. And I need to look at that. I need to look at them in that way. Mm-hmm. You mentioned to me a few weeks ago that you're working on a book proposal about sexual values clarification. And That's I would right. love for you to talk about what that means. Yeah. So the idea of this actually did come from my experience with cheating. And um, I understand now, especially having gone back into the dating world, that values, value systems, you know, to a varying degree, people don't give much thought to their personal values in general. If you grow up with um, a family that's like, you know, we're a family that values this and that and the other thing, that's great. And you can kind of incorporate those things and tweak them along the way. But a lot of us don't grow up with that. And I think the area that needs the most attention, as far as I'm concerned, for us having successful or enriching human relationships, um, romantic and sexual, is looking at what you value in a partner or partners and being able to articulate that as you're moving through the dating world and through the varying stages of your dating life. Because what we value in our 20s may not be what we value in our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. So being able to give voice to what are my values now? How can I explain that to this person? How can I in turn elicit from my potential partner, what their values are. And like, how can we see if we, we align, if we're a good fit or the areas where we don't align, are there compromises that we can bring into our relationship that will make this work? Understanding that this person really values their autonomy. And I really value, um, lots of time spent with, with my primary partner. How do you make those two things jive? And I think these are the fundamental questions that I see within my clients' relationships that I'm helping them to clarify and hopefully build deeper and more meaningful relationships. Yeah. Would you be open to sharing, um, because it sounds like you've done this work yourself, um, a few of your own sexual values? A hundred percent. So after, (laughs) this is very personal, but after the, the cheating incident was revealed to me, Um, I, in Sharpie, like scribbled love, honesty, respect. And I I put it up on our refrigerator and I was like, this is what I'm about. You know, we have the love, you were dishonest and your actions were disrespectful. And these are the things that at my core, regardless of whether I have an open, closed, whatever relationship, they need to be present. And, um, this was sort of something that just came out of me. And then after that, I began working with a coach who actually happens to be a a poly coach. Her name's Kitty Shambliss. And um, she had many, uh, she has a a lot of experience with working with clients who have gone through cheating because even in open relationships and poly relationships, there can still be infidelity Um, So she was able to help me clarify even more, you know, on top of love, honesty, and respect, I do value consistency and also flexibility. So 
yeah, I think for me it was um, this incident that was really charged for me where I was like this fundamentally um, hit a hit a big wall for me. I was just like, how is this possible? Because I am so about these things and I feel like I live these things. It's this love, honesty, and respect. So how how could this person have like violated <laughs> those things? Um, but also like, how can I get really clear about this from, from day one with a partner and be able to express that, that these are the things that I really stand for. And subsequently I've gone on dates and I've mentioned my values date one, date two. And, uh, I think it is really helpful for people to know where I stand and also super impressive. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. The thing about, you know, any kind of values work, um, obviously we're talking about it through a sexual context. The thing that's always interesting to me is that a lot of the value words, they do tend to be these big words, big nouns, right? Like love, honesty, respect. I think you said consistency, flexibility. And so my question is when you're articulating this in a dating situation, you know, to on a date to a potential new partner, how do you describe like in more specific what those things mean to you? Because I feel like it could be interpreted a different way, you know, what consistency means to one person versus another person, for example. Yeah, 100%. And I think that that comes out within the context of the conversation. So um, my most recent conversation was with someone who is in an open relationship and so it was helpful for me to sketch out the things that are important to me being potentially with him. Um, and because he was able to share with me the framework of his relationship um, with his primary partner, uh, I understood that he's a person who who values honesty. Um, he tells his partner like when he goes on dates and all of that is very transparent. And um, there was a level of respect. He talked very highly about his primary partner um, and that conversation flowed. And so I think I I brought those things up to acknowledge some of the things that I was seeing in him to say like, yeah, you're, you're actually kind of walking the walk of things that I, I talk about um, and that I, I hope to expect from people that I invite into my life. So this might be a potentially good match. Um, and so I, I do think of it as a conversation starter. I don't necessarily, ad, you know, uh, advise you show up on a first date and be like, my values are right. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Just like I would necessarily recommend you show up and say, you know, my five-year plan is, you know, X, Y, and Z. For some people, that's a real big turn on. Um, so you have to kind of judge, you know, judge your audience. But um, I think that having your values come out naturally within the context of conversation to either bridge a gap and say, oh, so I really value um, respect. And it sounds like in your past relationships, like you have struggled with respect. You know, if somebody, if somebody experiences maybe explains to you that they've had um, emotionally volatile or um, abusive relationships in the past and they could be the perpetrator or the survivor or whatever. Um, but yeah, just be like that. This seems to be something that was an issue for you and, and kind of talk about that. Like I really need to be in a partnership where there's, there's a mutual respect and that we respect each other's boundaries and um, tell me how that, that is for you. So I think it can also be used as a way to 
invite deeper conversation as the relationship unfolds and you begin to get to know someone. Um, when you are very clear about your values, you can use them as a kind of uh, marker for saying, you know, hey, I, I've noticed this, like, and this is this is a value of mine. So where are you at? Mm-hmm. The thing that I find most interesting about this topic is I feel like, I mean, obviously there's lots of social scripts and social contracts and stuff out there in all areas of our lives, but I think specifically with sex and dating that there there are such overarching categories of this is how you behave, you know, in a dating situation. And this is what the relationship escalator looks like and how that moves and, you know, all of that stuff. And so I'm curious, maybe for someone who hasn't done this, who hasn't actually taken a step back from those scripts to say, oh, hey, like what actually are my values when it comes to this area of my life? Is there anything like practical, tangible that you've done personally that's helped or that you would suggest as a, maybe a jumping off point for someone who's interested in digging into this for themselves? Yes. I mean, I plan on having an assessment within the book uh, for people to to actually go through and 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 figure out what their sexual values are. So that will be a component of the book. Um, but I think as just a, a starter, it would be a great practice for people to incorporate um kind of a meditation with this, um, really thinking about or sitting with yourself about, you know, how do you want your next relationship to feel? Um, that's an exercise that I do with clients a lot. And, and it's really interesting all the things that can come from that because so many women in particular have their checklist. I mentioned that before. It's, it's nice to have as sort of a marker of like, these are the qualities or standards that I would love to invite into my life. That's great. Um, but I think often people forget that there is a way that one feels when they are in the presence of someone who they deeply connect with and who they love. And those things, that feeling and that emotion of connectedness, that comes from, I think, a rooted feeling in shared values. Mm-hmm. Um, so sitting with yourself and thinking about how you want to feel in relationship can elicit some emotions that may be tied to values. So for instance, um, I had a client, I've had several clients actually say, I feel safe, you know, in the presence of my future partner, I want to feel safe. And so you value safety, you, you value, um, explicit boundaries, like whatever that means, you can start to extrapolate from the feeling words that we would associate, like you said, those big terms um, of love, honesty, respect um, that can come from that. Yeah. My mind is going a million miles an hour while you're talking. Like it's funny. I'm like listening to you. And then I'm also like doing this work. Trying on to do the exercise. And I'm like, this is, I mean, obviously that's why you're a great coach and great at what you do. But yeah. Cause the thing that popped into my mind is like in this arena of how you want to feel, which I think is a great question because it does get you out of that maybe more rigid checklist of, you know, I want someone who, and then it's something really specific, this idea of how you want to feel. I want to feel and I guess this is true, not just in romantic partnerships, but in like relationships of all kinds in my life supported in like being the fullest expression of myself, whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so personal development. Oh, definitely. A value. Yeah. I yeah. mean, growth is my highest value just in general. So I'm sure that that definitely plays over into, you know, romantic stuff as well. Exactly. Yeah. So it is really helpful to kind of tap into the feeling 
it can inform a lot. And I think a lot of people try to numb their feelings because they're like, if they go on a date and this person checks all of their boxes, the uh, quote unquote good on paper person, um, and they don't, they don't necessarily feel the feelings. I think there's a lot, there's a lot of people who struggle really hard with that. Like I should like them more. I should be more into them. But honestly, a lot of human connection is, is, is more intangible than that. And so getting rooted in the feeling allows you to be like, you know what, you're five out of 20 things on the list, but I feel so good in your presence because you make me feel safe and you make me feel like I'm the only person in the room. And you've been incredibly consistent with your date planning. And that makes me feel incredibly respected. Mm hmm. Yeah, I agree with you that I think a lot of times it is more intangible and it's kind of like a you know it when you feel it situation. It's why a lot of people say, I would have never in a million years thought I'd end up with this person. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, so that makes me want to ask about the flip side of that. You know, I think it's one thing to do this type of inquiry work when you're not partnered um, and then kind of go into potential new partnerships armed with this like extra level of self-knowledge. But I'm interested, and maybe this is, you know, with clients that you've worked with, when, let's say, couples maybe have like find that they have some incompatible values and, and um, I don't know, like how to really deal with that. Yeah. First of all, it's okay. You know, uh, as I mentioned earlier, noticing that your values are different is not a sign that you were uh, not a good match, but recognizing what those differences are can allow you some clarity as to where that person's thought processes are going when you hit a bump in the road. So if I'm someone who, and this is less romantic, but it's kind of like a mm, uh, one of those issues that happens within couples, but if I'm someone who values um, efficiency and we're planning a trip and you, my partner is someone who values experiences and uh, kind of going off the cuff that can present a lot of problems, but that also provides that knowledge that we're both the way that we are and that we value different things can allow for a compromise. So again, it's, it's not that these things are necessarily going to tear the relationship apart. They mm-hmm. may. It de- really depends on how, um, I guess, counter- uh, related (laughs) they are, but, uh, I do think that just values clarification in general allows for, uh, a better place to start a conversation that doesn't always end in the same place of two people being angry that the other person is, you know, being a piece of shit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point in that, you know, it just because you're different in certain values or tendencies doesn't necessarily have to lead to problems. It potentially leads to more compromise. It's just then like, what are the values for which you can reach a compromise and what are the values that you can't? Like the thing that popped into my head when you were talking is like someone who values sexual exclusivity and someone who doesn't, right? That Mm -hmm. like, I would see that maybe being something harder to compromise on. Right. Perhaps not possible, but I I don't know. (laughs) Yes. And that is number one, I think the the reasoning behind my exploration of this topic and the reason why I wanted to to write uh, about it in depth and, and provide hopefully some tools for people is that 
we are living in a time that is far more permissive in terms of what we can and cannot do, who we can and cannot be with. I am I am hopeful that we will continue to be on this path, though <laughs> where we are right now in our political climate doesn't give me much hope. But I, I think that the the bend is towards progress, um, as they say. So I, I think we're going to have more and more opportunities to explore ways of being with other human beings on this planet. And therefore, it becomes even more crucial to know what it is you want. Or the flip side of that is to know that you don't know and be able to communicate that as well, Mm -hmm. right? To be like, I don't know what my values are and I'm kind of open to anything right now, literally anything. And I think knowing that about yourself is is powerful. But um, yeah, I would love for there to be a level of acceptance and communication about values that the people who are looking for non-monogamy and open relationships and um, relationship anarchy can find others who align with their values and people who are looking for monogamous connections can also find those partners more easily too. Yeah. I mean, and I think that finding what you want and having those deeper connections is more and more possible. The more that every individual does this work and is able to say, this is what I want. This is what works for me. And if there's more kind of like safe space around that, especially like you mentioned for the things that are outside of what's been historically known as the traditional mainstream norm. Yes. And I recognize that this work isn't for everybody. Not everybody gives a shit about their values. I get that. <laughs> but um, I I hope that I can provide some tools of understanding, you know, what this could mean. You know, I like to think about a world in which everyone is a little bit more self-aware in their dating and, and romantic and sexual lives, because I think a lot more people would be happier. And my whole goal in life is to have people have better sex lives and better lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And whatever that looks like for them. I love it. Exactly. That is a fantastic goal. So with that in mind, one of the things that we are going to do today is do a little Q and a. So I, when, um, I told my Patreon community that you were going to be coming back on the show. People were really stoked. And I said, hey, do you have any questions? And we're going to do this anonymously. So feel free to ask your like deepest, scariest questions. And um, we have five folks who shared awesome questions. And I'm so grateful that they were honest and you know brought these intimate questions up. And I'm really excited to dive in and have you answer their questions. Me too. I love a Q&A and these questions are everything. I know. They're everything. So <laughs> those of you who submitted these questions, we love you. Yes. Um, so, and they cover, you know, a, a good range of topics too. So the first one, they do. Um, this person says, my partner and I like to watch and read porn sometimes, but it can be difficult to find stuff that doesn't squick me out with misogyny to the point of being turned off. Or it's so patently ridiculous that it's bad movie funny, not sexy. We found some creators that are good, generally women, but do you have any other recommendations? I do. I am constantly, constantly recommending feminist porn to people who are sensitive to misogynist uh, depictions and sexist depictions of women within porn. Um, and I also recommend it for people who are interested in uh, kink and BDSM, but who feel like maybe the people who are in those films are uh, 
doing it for the money rather than for their own personal enjoyment. So there's definitely um, reasons to go out there and support feminist porn. Um, so on my website, myishabattle.com, if you click on resources, um, among other links, there is a link to feminist porn. One of the things that's great about feminist porn is that the creators are usually, not usually, but sometimes they're actors and script writers and they're creating their own scenes. So if you see someone, for instance, who is um, getting gangbanged by eight dudes, it's because she wanted to get gangbanged by, by eight dudes. All right. Um, I think that is a subtle but very powerful distinction when you know the intent behind what is being produced because it might look very similar, but the idea is that that person chose to be in that scene in that way. And I think it makes a whole hell of a lot of difference. I, I also believe that it's great to pay for porn and make sure that the artists, actors, directors, creators are getting paid their fair share. Um, so that's another kind of basic principle for feminist and ethical porn. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that idea, obviously, that's something that I support having a like a listener funded show and right thinking about doing that type of work that if there's content that you want to see more of or content that you love and that you care about folks getting paid and that, you know, financial transaction, then it's up to us, you know, as much as we are able to support them with our dollars. A hundred percent. For those who aren't necessarily visual and like a more auditory experience. There is a new company on the block um, called Dipsy and they are uh, erotica stories, fantasy um, stories for women. Um, and it's all audio. So they aim to be the headspace of female erotica. Ooh. Okay. So are they like, <laughs> like, book length or it's um right now they're stories so the site is dipsy stories d-i-p-s-e-a stories.com and i may actually be contributing some things to them that's so. exciting okay well <laughs> i'm gonna as soon as we get off this call i'm gonna go check that out because that sounds like exactly what i wanted to i'm uh, obviously at the time of this recording i'm about to leave for my hike and i'm thinking what do i want to bring i've downloaded a couple of audiobooks <laughs> podcast episodes and i'm like wait hold on this is exactly what i want to bring on this hike that's what i should be listening to in the wilderness alone right <laughs> right i think so totally um is there anything else uh, on that question or that topic that you wanted to talk about I think those are two fantastic resources. I mean, if you go to the link that's on my site, it's the Feminist Porn Awards site. And so they have like a catalog of production houses and, um, you know, one-off videos that people have done that um, that could keep you pretty busy. All right. <laughs> Challenge accepted. <laughs> um, so the next question, this person says, I'm wondering about your feelings on repeat sex with an ex. I've always sort of viewed it as recycling and it being good for the environment, particularly when it's good sex, but I'm wondering if this is actually a negative behavior for one's sex life overall. I think that sometimes we do it because it's hard to start again with a new partner and be vulnerable, but should we be doing that work? For context, my ex and I have been on and off again for over seven years in various levels of commitment. I've always been very clear about what I want. He's less clear. But generally speaking, we can't be in the same room without hitting it, and I'm starting to think that I may be doing myself a disservice. I first want to commend this uh, question asker for their conservation efforts, um, you know, saving, <laughs> saving Dick uh, the world over and recycling it. Um, 
I think that there is a general negative perception that if you are having sex with your ex, that you're moving backwards. And I've struggled with this before, for sure. This idea of like, oh, am I going backwards? But um, I had a conversation with a friend of a friend when I had my most recent breakup. I'm like, I'm kind of thinking about reaching out to this guy who I had really great sex with. Like, what do you think? And she's like, you know, honestly, like, I'm not the same person I was two years ago. I don't expect for, you know, this other person to be the exact same person that they were. So when you think of it like that, um, each time that you're revisiting this person, you're, you know, essentially creating a new chapter together. And I think that's a better, more like uplifting way to think about revisiting than to be really down on yourself and say, you know, I'm, I'm moving backwards. I'm taking a step back. Now your friends might tell you that, And especially if that person was a negative influence in your life at some point and they all had to sit through the stories and they were tired of sitting through them again, I get that too. So when you say that, you know, you're starting to feel like it's a negative cycle, that is something that I think maybe you should listen to more than judging yourself for going backwards, but really trust how you feel about the interaction and what is that that's going on? Is it because he isn't clear about what he wants and you're not sure. And so there might be some guilt about taking advantage of him if he's more emotionally invested than you are, or is it something else? You know, Mm -hmm. I think that that's, that's worth exploring. Don't, don't beat yourself up about going backwards, but think about what it is about you being with him now that's bringing up some of these negative emotions. Yeah. There's a lot in here that I think is really interesting and really relatable in this person's question, especially because it brings up what we were discussing a little bit earlier about sort of social scripts when it comes to dating. Like, I think that there's this idea that, you know, you break up with someone and you like don't even stay friends. And it's not, and like you said, that it's going backwards if anything winds up happening. And I guess maybe that can be the case in certain relationships, but I've started trying to think, okay, again, if I like step outside of the script or the box, what's actually going on here? Is it possible that, you know, we're breaking up because you know, we don't want to have that level of relationship, but we want to maintain a sexual relationship or we want to maintain a friendship without the romance or like this idea of transitioning relationships has been something that has been of interest to me lately, as opposed to just thinking like, okay, well, they're an ex and so we can never speak or whatever again. Um, I think that's just sort of an interesting way to think about this too. That's like how much of the fear of it being a bad idea to sleep with an ex is, is that like your actual fear or is it like a social conditioning fear? That's something that came up for me when I was thinking about this. And then to your point, it's like the intention behind it, right? Like if it doesn't feel good for you to do it, then that's, I think the interesting thing to consider. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Um, anything else for that one? No, I think that's good. I mean, I, I think that these things are are tricky. And when you have history with someone, you know, sometimes it's hard to, to leave. But um, again, because I value honesty and respect, <laughs> I would imagine that, you know, if you're, if you're getting back together and the sex is good and, and things are feeling good, that um, there's nothing to really beat yourself up over. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that question that you posed earlier in the values conversation, you know, th- about, you know, this is how I want to feel in my next relationship, for example. But I think even that check-in of how is this thing that I'm engaging in, whether it's sex with an ex, how is that making me feel? Like, what are mm-hmm. my needs from this person? Am I getting them met? Are they getting their needs met? If so, okay. If not, huh, what do I want to do about that? Absolutely. Um, so this next one, oh, I can't wait to see what you have to say about this one. So 
Uh, and this is a little bit of a longer question, but the question is, I consider myself to be a sex positive lady, but it's a bitch dating men and dealing with their bullshit around sex. Even with men who are in other ways, loving and caring and nice people, sex gets weird. They get selfish and shitty. And I don't know. I think it's that they learn about sex from porn and then they don't know how to behave in the real world. And so I'm constantly having to assert boundaries and demand to be treated well in bed. And it's exhausting. It feels like being a sex positive woman opens you up to a lot of shitty assumptions and behaviors from men. And I often feel like I'm being seen as a prize rather than a participant. And I'm so sick of it. Other than only dating women in the future, which is an option for me, how do I deal? What advice do you have for me to avoid being continuously traumatized by my sexual relationships with men? I don't know if you have any, but I just don't know how to be a sex positive and healthy uh, person in a world where men are taught to use women for sex and women are taught to be available for men's pleasure and not their own. Yeah, I that fucking sentence. love this question. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's so good, and it it really puts a fine point on how a lot of women, hetero women, are feeling right now. And I gave a talk not too long ago about um, you know the state of straight couples in the wake of Me Too. And I mean, I know the question asker is looking for advice around dating, but I think that in general, if you identify as a feminist, it's hard not to have a very negative perception of maleness, masculinity, men in your life. It's hard not to question them, period. And then if you are actively dating or you're with someone who treats you a certain way that you are like, really? You know, I got to deal with this shit too. It's, um, it can be incredibly disillusioning. And I, I want to offer my sympathy to the question asker to let her know that um, as a sex coach, this has been a recent experience of mine um, where I thought, oh, shit, like, wow, that was a complete setup. Um, <laughs> that was a complete um, situation where I was either like Casanova or, um, you know, was treated differently after we had sex. And the only thing that I can say is that not all men, you know, and I, I, I really do believe that I, I do believe that there are men out there who understand and who get it and who don't have never treated women that way and will never treat women that way. And unfortunately it feels right now like they're in the minority, but you know, I, I, I do believe that it, this is completely off topic, but I was just um, at a family reunion in Texas and my like Midwestern, like teen to 20 something younger cousins were talking about, you know, we were doing like line dancing and we had to be like boy and, you know, boy, girl, boy, girl. And two of my boy cousins wanted to dance together and they were like, the caller or the dance caller was like, you have to separate. You have to be boy, girl, boy, girl. And they're like, yeah, that's sexist. Like calling things out. And these are good, sweet boys. <laughs> Not to say they're age appropriate for you, but um, I do believe that there's a, there's a new masculinity that's emerging that is a bit more woke and a bit more understanding that female sexual empowerment isn't a threat 
to their masculinity, that it can invite uh, a deeper level of connection as human beings to know that your partner is just as valued as you are. So I think it takes a lot of digging. And I'm sorry, I don't have much more than that to give you other than words of encouragement. But I, I do think that there are those men out there. Um, I think this is just throwing it out there. Not to, not that this person is doing anything wrong or that this can be avoided, but I do think that like if you're online dating, there are maybe some ways that you can tweak your profile a little bit to eliminate that element. If this is happening to you all the time, we can, we can look at that, I think. So that's just my caveat as well that like sometimes what we're putting out can, can, attract those stupid fuckers i mean it's just it is what it is and mm -hmm. it's harder to to weed through them but uh yeah i i put i don't know if you put that you're a feminist in your profile i do but i think that weeds a lot of assholes out <laughs> yeah yeah that i was gonna ask for a follow-up on when you mentioned the specific things like putting in your profile or not putting in your profile other than that are there any that you would suggest um yeah, I mean, if if it's it's funny because I, I have uh, I definitely recommend that people don't don't go too far into the like this is what I'm not looking for direction, but I think if you focus on you know I'm looking for respectful um, interactions with men who are woke. I have I did I do put that as well in my profile. I'm looking for a woke ass go getter, you know that's my phrasing of it. I've I've heard from guys that I've gone on a date with that I'm that have been like, oh yeah, a feminist is kind of like, oh, it's kind of scary. Like, and I'm like, all right, well, if that scares you, then this is a problem. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't have sex with those people. Yeah, I mean, uh, the reason I mean, I love your answer to this one, just because it's honest, and because you're very clearly like, hey, there is no capital A answer to what this question asker is getting at, which is obviously a huge question, and like you said, a lot of. Um, women are experiencing this, you know, particularly right now, I think. Yeah. And so, but I like the, the responsibility that you're putting, it's, it's like both, right? Like obviously shitty men don't be shitty. And also if you're interested in dating men, that there is some responsibility of what am I putting out there? Like you said, like in terms of on a profile or what am I sort of forcing myself to maybe have to sift through by the nature of, you know, how I'm portraying this or whatever. And that might or might not be relevant for this specific person. But I, um, I like, I feel like that goes in line with the values thing. You know, like you said, for someone who's like intimidated by you being a feminist, that's obviously not going to be a good fit. So why not right. get it out the, of the way, you know, and like have it act as a filter. Yeah. One more consideration is I don't know where the question asker is located, but, you know, like that can also affect who your choices are. And, you know, if they are steeped in a culture, I'm thinking about like if you're trying to date as a feminist or someone who expects to not be treated shittily after sex in an area that's like a big like college football town, that's hard. You know what I mean? So I also want to say that like culture plays a big part in this as well, that like, uh, living in a larger city as I do or metropolitan area. Um, I, I do have that sense of hope that there are guys out there, but at the same time, I acknowledge that there are areas of our country in which that percentage of dude is, is really small. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, maybe open up your, 
your parameters. Mm-hmm. I'm particularly interested and struck by, like I said, the the last sentence of this question, this idea, you know, um, that they mentioned of where men are taught to use women for sex and women are taught to be available for men's pleasure and not their own. Um, and something that I know that you had mentioned earlier that you've been thinking about lately is the subtle ways that women give their sexual power and body autonomy over to men. And I know this this wasn't mentioned by that question, but it was something that you had said in email that you were thinking about. And I feel like there's some kind of tie in there. So I'm interested to hear more about what's been coming up for you in thinking about that. I do think a lot about this. And it comes up not only with my um, sex uh, clients, but also my dating clients. And one way that I see this reflected in my dating clients and the the reason that I brought up like what's in your profile is because a lot of women uh, will put, they will put a reigning endorsement for themselves in their profile. I'm this, I'm, you know, like kicking ass at work. I, you know, I'm all about these things uh, without a call to action, so to speak, or um, an expectation of, what they are looking for. I think that is super, super common. And when I see it, it's one of the first things that I address with my dating clients is let's talk about what it would feel like for you to put out what you're really looking for. Cause you are trying to get married. You are trying to have a family. You, all of those things are real, right? So why aren't you asking for that? Um, because there are men out there who want those things as well. There's like some changing of the belief system there that yes, they exist. It might be a smaller pool, but they do exist. And when you put that out, it does attract um, the right person or, you know, the right kind of person. Um, So I see that of like giving up of like, I put all my best pretty pictures. I made myself look like this, you know, fantastic package of a person, of a human, of a specifically like a specific type of, of female. And, you know, that's, that's what I'm giving to this experience no expectations of what's coming back. Do you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. I think that that is definitely culture. You know, that is something that women have grown up with ingrained in them since day one. We, our bodies are policed. We're told not to dress certain ways, lest men be tempted and take advantage of us. We are constantly on the defense and never really told that we deserve to be treated a certain way. I mean, maybe we're told like, you know, boys should respect you and all these things that kind of seem amorphous and and hard to understand, especially as we're growing up and don't really know what that looks like. Um, But I also think that in the dating world and in the sex world, that plays out in women being quiet about what they expect sexually. That's why I have so many female clients who... Um, do not experience orgasm or have difficulty uh, experiencing orgasm by themselves or with a partner. Um, Because I think some of our early sexual experiences are often dictated by the needs and wants of male partners. There's not an emphasis on self-learning, either through masturbation or even like kind of looking at yourself and your partner together. Um, There's not an emphasis on telling your partner what it is that you want. I've had a ton of clients too come to me and say, like, he wants to dirty talk. I don't know what the fuck I want, so I don't know what to say. 
And that is symptomatic of a structure in which women's needs and desires have been subverted. And our wants and our needs have been secondary to what our male partners want and need. So it, it, in a weird way, it's like it's natural to give up that power and to not feel that autonomy. When we talk about female empowerment, that's the kind of conversation that I would love for us to be having is this isn't just about women being able to have the careers that they want and be able to get married and, and, and start a family and still be respected um, as, as professional career women. Like we're in that space too, but I also want there to not be a pleasure gap where women are not experiencing the type of sex that they want because they've never been encouraged to have a voice in the bedroom. That phrase, uh, pleasure gap, I don't know that I've ever heard that before, but that feels like the truest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> like when you just said that, I was like, oh, okay, well, that's what truth feels like. <laughs> yes, it's dispar- it is true. And if you Google pleasure gap, I cannot remember the name of the book right now. Um, but uh, there's numerous articles. There's a book about the pleasure gap or the orgasm gap uh, that talks about this discrepancy between male's experience of orgasm versus female. And uh, the statistics are not good, folks. And it, it makes sense because women weren't studied in early sexological research. Um, We were always seen as counterparts to male sexuality. Our desire cycles were seen as some type of like reflection of male cycles instead of a completely separate experience that we might be having. So when no one's paying attention to how the fuck you work or gives a shit about what turns you on, how are we expected to have an equal playing field in the bedroom. The thing that's so interesting about this kind of social conditioning, like I I was talking about this with a friend maybe a month ago, and we were talking about the fact that no one ever sat us down and explained this. I don't know that it was ever said explicitly, but there was an understanding um, of being a straight woman and just like the messaging that we got that sex is over when the man orgasms, right? Like that's like, that's what the duration of like penetrative sex is like, or, you know, whatever. And no one ever said that to me. And yet I feel like that was like a universally adopted idea in a lot of not just women's minds, but just like in a lot of people's minds in general, like that's when sex is over. And that we were both like, wait, this is horrifying. Where did that idea come from? How did we wind up believing that? And it led to the conversation of like how many years we spent faking orgasms and yeah. just, oh my god like it's very real <laughs> and you're there you're present but you're anticipating his orgasm yeah. how does that affect your own experience you know when mm-hmm. when things are when are when things are timed by his clock and you know that your response is you know it needs to either speed up or slow down depending on how whatever he's doing you know, that has a real impact on women's experience of sex. If you're constantly thinking outside of yourself, I don't want to discredit the men who, who are like very generous lovers. And I was very blessed with like lots of sexual exploration that did not include penetrative sex. So I have a whole, I'm just like, Oh, we ain't done. No, I'm like, I'll take care of this. Or now we do that. I've, I've kind of 
luckily grown up with a different um, system in place in my brain. Um, but I, I do think that that is, is very real, that expectation that everything is dependent upon the man. And if he is not particularly attentive to what's happening with you and your body, because he's also been conditioned that that doesn't necessarily matter as much as his own pleasure, then yeah, that's a real, that's a real setup folks. Yeah. I mean, and and nothing that I am saying is, I'm not trying to say it as a generalization that applies to all people or any gender or anything. It's just talking about my experience, but thinking about it and specifically with the added piece of faking orgasms, it's like, those partners, those men weren't even given the chance to like, like I didn't ask for things to be different, right? Like I was just so, oh, well, this is just the way that it is. It wasn't even a dialogue. It wasn't a, you know, for whatever reason I didn't feel, and these weren't abusive situations. I didn't feel empowered, I guess, or that it was okay to be able to speak up or to ask for what I want, or, you know, it was kind of the, just accept this, or this is a transactional part of a relationship. And I'm getting all these other things out of the relationship that I like. Like, and I think that that's common as well, that it's, not necessarily that these men were doing anything wrong that like, again, it goes back to some of that responsibility is on me as well, but how much, how deep the conditioning goes for whether or not it even feels okay to speak up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, it, I have said this recently, but I definitely feel it. It's just like, we're, we're swimming in the fishbowl of patriarchy. That's all it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, okay, taking a sort of a more practical um, approach to it for anyone listening who is in the place of, yeah, I would love to take back some of that power and be able to speak up and ask for what I want. If that's a really foreign experience, I think that that's really scary. Do you have any sort of beginner tips for that? Yes. And this came out of a workshop that I led, co-facilitated. I have a workshop that I co-facilitate called Lust for Life, and we've offered it um, several times now, um, mostly in person once we did it virtually. But if people are interested, please let me know because we kind of shop it around. It's myself and um, my kind of like work wife, um, Lauren Kaneko Jones, who is an acupuncturist and Chinese herbalist. And um, so we talk about female desire and how to cultivate it. And um, what does it even mean within this context? And so we did this a few weeks ago. And afterwards, someone came up to me and said, uh, you know, the biggest part that I'm taking away is to think about what I want. And then that that is the starting point, like to even give yourself permission to think about what it is that you want. Unfortunately, female sexuality has been largely dominated by these expectations of, you know, uh, what to do to please your man. Um, and, and that's what we learn growing up is that our, our bodies are there for their pleasure. And what can we do to make ourselves more desirable and pleasurable for him? And not to say that that's a terrible thing to think about. How can I, how can I be of uh, pleasure service to someone else? I think that would be great, especially if that's uh, reciprocated. But if that's all we're thinking about, then there is no space to think about what it is that we actually want. That is why so many women get stumped when a guy's like, what do you want me to do to you? It's like, I don't fucking know because I've just been going along with whatever has been happening to me. 
And in order to transform sex from an act that is done to you and an orgasm is given to you and it's something that is external, you have to think about what it is that you want. And then from there, think about how can you co-create that experience with a partner? What is it going to take for that experience to manifest? And how can you see pleasure as something that is innate within you that is never given, but is shared. Mm. Yeah, that's really well said. I love that perspective. You're so wise. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So diving back into the the listener questions, we have two more, I think. Um, So this next person asks, what is your opinion or researched perspective on herpes? I know folks who feel it's very common and not something to be concerned about transmitting because so many people have it and don't know it or because they've never had an outbreak. But I have other people in my life who refuse to have any sexual contact with someone with herpes because supposedly it can cause issues with pregnancy and birth. I feel like I've done lots of Googling and been really dissatisfied with finding reliable, truthful answers. Do you have resources that you can recommend about this specifically? I love this question and I am going to apologize profusely to you question answerer or question asker um, that you're probably not going to like my answer. And that is that everyone who you've talked to about herpes is right because everyone is entitled to feel how they feel about STIs and their uh, risk associated with STIs. This is a super personal thing for people. So, um, you know, my perspective on this is that unfortunately we're taught in school that STIs are the thing to avoid as uh, along with pregnancy. And that if you do get an STI, you are tainted as a, as an individual. Um, and so unfortunately we have a lot of people who are very scared and feel a lot of guilt, shame and depression if they ever contract an STI. And there's no, they're, they're right to feel that way because that's, that's what we've grown up with. That's the messaging that we've grown up with. However, we're all biological creatures. Currently we have millions of organisms living on and within our bodies. And STIs are one of the many things that our bodies are susceptible to. Um, Not only that, but our bodies are brilliant, beautiful, wonderful machines that can fight off infection. Um, I will share that I've had HPV and my body has, has fought it naturally. And, you know, uh, (laughs) when I went to the physician's office and like, he's like, you know, you've got HPV. And I was like, you know, I've had a really busy summer and, uh, kind of makes sense. Uh, what's, what's going on, you know? And that was because my experience was that literally every woman that I knew at the time had some form of HPV. So if you're someone who doesn't talk about these things, who doesn't know how common they are, that fear and that self-protection is real. And it's learned from, Sources that are trying to tell you that diseases, infections make you a dirty person. We don't harangue and harass people who get a flu, right? But we are so vicious to people who contract sexually transmitted infections. 
And I think this is a disservice. I think this is wrong. I think, I mean, I'm getting a little bit on my soapbox here, but, you know, I don't fault people for wanting to protect themselves. And I really wish that we lived in a culture that talked about these things like we talk about any other type of infection or disease or, you know, contagion that's out in the world that we are susceptible to because we are living, breathing human organisms. So... That being said, I, I think that there is a lot of information out there about STIs and herpes in particular because there's a lot of differing opinions about it. And like I said, the body can fight it off sometimes. For other bodies, it can't. Uh, but it is the most common STI. Um, and a lot of people do have it. So it's, it's really about thinking about what it means to you and not caring so much about what it means to other people, except for if you personally have herpes and you have a partner who is very sensitive to that, and that requires a conversation around what are some safe sex practices that you can use to prevent that person from getting an STI. But hopefully you can talk to them and be like, hey, if you get it, it's not the end of the world and perhaps your body will fight it off. Yeah, I, I I love that answer because I think you're you're speaking to almost what wasn't asked, but or what maybe was in between the lines of what was asked, uh, and like bringing up how real the shaming is around like sexual health and STIs. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean it is very real for people, and so for me, I'm very blasé. My doctor was like, "Why are you not freaking out about this?" <laughs> and I was like how many times do you give an HPV diagnosis? You know, like, why is this, why are you coming at me like this with these like hushed, sad tones? How is that supposed to make me feel? Um, (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, When I like, again, was like, I, I have so many people in my life who have gone through having a diagnosis. And I think HPV is one of the lighter weight ones that I've, I've had friends come to me with. So, Mm. um, this is something that I think we have to think of more broadly and also respect that people are at different stages of, of knowing, uh, how to handle this and that those reactions to an STI are, are sometimes very rooted in some pretty shameful, information that they've gotten their whole lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when it comes to sex, this area of sexual health, are there any specific resources that you like and find reliable? Mm. I mean, I love Planned Parenthood. They have great uh, resources for STI prevention and pamphlets, and they do a great job of normalizing the experience of getting an STI. Um, so yeah, check out everything that they do, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And something else too, just to underscore what you were saying that I think has a tie into when we were talking about the sexual values and if that's something that somebody cares about, you know, being going through the process of articulating that for themselves and what it is that they want and how they want to feel. And I think from what you're saying, I see a a common thread that could be true here as well, that it's up to everyone to decide, you know, as far as safer sex practices go, what is their level of, let's say, risk tolerance? I don't know if that's the right (laughs) terminology to use, but these are things to think about and decisions like individual decisions that each person makes and then therefore conversations to communicate with your partners. Right. I'm never going to tell someone that they are wrong for being concerned with contracting an STI. Um, 
And that being said, I'm never going to tell someone that they're wrong for not being all that concerned uh, unless, you know, they have a known STI and they're going around being unsafe. Then that to me is an issue. Mm -hmm. But um, I think with safe sex practices always being incorporated and an open dialogue about when uh, tests were conducted last and what the results were, I think you know, that can sometimes bring up these differences of opinion and hopefully something can, some agreement can be reached Mm -hmm. where it's this sex act and not that, or, um, you know, not during a breakout, a hundred percent. No, you know, so I, I think that, uh, you're right. This is, is very much a a values-based conversation. And also I think that it enters the arena of, good communication. And so I'm curious, the same way that you were sharing how it plays out for you in your dating life to talk about your values with partners or potential partners, how do you go about the sort of safer sex practices conversation? Because I think this is something that can feel, I don't know, scary for folks, especially because of what you said, that there's a deep-rooted, you know, even bringing this up, you know, therefore that means this bad thing about me, or we do have a lot of, I think, internalized judgments, like you said about if, you know, if you have an STI, then you're dirty, or these things that we've been taught that aren't true, but are definitely stigmatized. Yeah, I mean, I think um, one easy way to address this prior to sex is, you know, a check-in of like, do you have a clean bill of health right now? You know, when was the last time you were tested? Um, and you know, that's, that's a good faith kind of thing. I mean, you know, I've definitely had, uh, heard stories of people wanting to see test results prior to having sex with them. So again, values there, if you don't want to take someone's, uh, word at face value. Um, but I think just having the expectation that at least condoms will be incorporated into, penetrative sex. Um, obviously there are other ways that you can, you know, have sex and barrier methods that you can use like dental dams or even saran wrap, um, if you're in a pinch. Um, but yeah, I think that having these conversations is tricky, but worth it. And for the anxiety that can be caused by having them, I mean, there's more anxiety, I think, by not having them. Yeah, I agree. And I think like any other skill, right? And communication of all kinds is a skill. This is the type of thing that gets easier the more that you do it. I have also found that for me personally, um, when it comes, let's say to sex or, you know, an, an area that I'm just starting to speak up about that I have found it easier and helpful to have those conversations with other intimate people in my life, you know, really close friends, maybe before a partner. Um, and like, not, not like practicing necessarily, although practicing if that works, but even to just talk, I'd same thing is true for me, like with money, right. Talking about money with some of my close friends and just like any of these sort of taboo things that we're not supposed to talk about. Um, I have found exploring the issues in like, as we were saying at the beginning, the like safe community, whether it's, you know, female community or something like that, um, has been helpful and empowering to then, you know, help me to articulate what it is that I want to say to the person that it impacts more directly. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. If you have anybody in your life who can be a willing party to practice with you, to have these kind of tough conversations, especially if you've been somebody in the past who's just not had the conversation because of whatever reason, um, yeah, take advantage of that and uh, run things by a buddy. And, you know, it's 
it, it's something that you do get better at with practice. And a lot of people don't want to practice because they think it makes them feel, you know, it feels silly or it feels like you're going to this really vulnerable place. But the fact of the matter is, is that we're, we're then like testing everything out in an even more vulnerable position. Yeah. So, and correct me if I'm wrong, but everything that we're speaking to seems like the perfect thing to work on, like with someone like you, that like, especially to have sort of an objective person, right? Like a sex coach to talk these things through with and someone who can maybe give you some tools that you don't have, um, or, you know, ways of approaching the situation that you wouldn't have thought of. I don't know if you work with people in sort of one or two off, you know, capacities like that, but everything you're saying sounds like, oh yeah, like, why would I not work with you to do this? You know? (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. I, um, I do work with people a lot around just crafting language and coming up with ways to either say what hasn't been said before or articulate a new thought or feeling about their sexuality that they want to convey to a partner. And so for a lot of people, you know, maybe talking about or initiating sex and talking about um, STIs, that's new, that is scary, that is difficult. And so, yeah, I've definitely had run-throughs with clients where we just, we practice back and forth, um, you know, I'll be the dude, you know, and run through everything. Uh, so that that has happened before. And a lot of my assignments um, tend to gravitate towards building on those communication skills and, and practicing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, anything else on this topic before we go to the last question? No, it's tricky. I just want to acknowledge that it's tricky. And um, yeah, <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I think even though all of these questions are covering, you know, different topics, one of the through lines, I think, is the reason that they are questions is because if there was just one simple yes or no capital A answer, this they would probably have the answers already, right? Like that there's, that there, I, I think there are definitely people that are listening to, maybe you can't relate to every single question, but I'm sure there are a lot of people that are like, oh, yeah, me too. Oh, okay, good. Thank you for asking that. Or you know, there's a reason that we have, we a lot of us have these similar questions is because this stuff is complex and nuanced and there, you know, we want there to be, you know, give me the six step plan to whatever. And that very rarely exists exists. Yes. And your question asker is definitely on the mark that sometimes Googling things is makes things even more confusing. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the wonderful, terrible internet. Um, so the last question, um, this person says I'm polyamorous and have multiple partners. One of my newer partners is a very good friend, but she's self-described as frigid. Even her primary partner of seven years jokes with her that she's really hard to come on to. She tends to feel very nervous and anxious about making the first move or showing interest in sex, but she loves sex, she tells me. What advice would you give an individual or couple having a hard time taking the above-the-brow theories and ideas about sex down into the body? In other words, what do you think can be explored to feel more free about sex when you're a naturally nervous person? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a great question that, I, that can certainly apply to people who aren't in a poly or open situation. Um, people who experience anxiety um, can be read as frigid. Um, and I, I really resist using that term. I think mostly because it has been a historically um, feminized term. Uh, we don't hear about a lot of frigid men, if mm-hmm. you uh, <laughs> if you think about it. Um, and so this this idea that that women somehow are withholding or or not able to relax into sex um, 
is is something that carries a lot of like a historical weight for me, I think, as a, as a student of sexology and feminism. But um, I definitely want to acknowledge that anxiety, depression, all number of things can contribute to someone's ability to feel comfortable in their body and explorative. So the fact that this person believes that they are very sexual, I think that's where I would start with them. If this was my client, I would inquire what that looks like for them. So you say you're a very sexual person, but it takes you a long time to build up to that. What do you need to feel safe? What do you need to feel sexual? What puts you in the mood? Are there ways that you've discovered that um, really help you to relax? And if so, how can we start to incorporate those um, maybe earlier on in the day when you know that we're going to have a date? Because I'd love to be able to you know, have that sexual experience with you and have it go really smoothly and well. So I need to know more about you and what your needs are. I think starting from from there is, is great. Um, and I think the fact that this person holds both of those identities of being, as you know, they say, frigid, but also very sexual, um, it's super interesting to me. So <laughs> I'd love to work with you. Um, <laughs> I love an interesting case. And um, I also think that there's there's something there that that person needs to communicate. And whatever that is, I find I find it's going to be very fascinating when it's revealed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that, this idea of just asking each other good questions. Yeah. And holding space for whatever's true for the other person to be true. Like, what do you need? And I think sometimes, you know, and you touched on this in another arena earlier, that one of the obstacles to speaking up is if we've never even really felt like it was okay to even ask ourselves that question, you know, that this idea, what do I even want or like? And then that feels like a whole other pressure. What's wrong with me that I don't know what I need or want or like? Well, nothing, right, is wrong with you. And that to cultivate a space that feels safe in order to actually get at and experiment at what what might answer that question. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the coachy part of me. That's why I I love trying to elicit things from people and I'm super curious. So, um, that feels very natural for me just to want to know more about this person's experience of being very sexual, but also having this, this other element of their sexuality that plays out in, in partnered sex. And so, um, another good place to start for this person in particular is to think about what are the elements of if they, if they masturbate, um, what are the elements that are there that make sex feel really good solo? And can those elements be incorporated into partnered sex? Because mm-hmm. sometimes people do have a difficulty transitioning from, okay, it's just me and my body and I know it and, uh, you know, this is all good. And then when you transition into, oh, this is me and my body in front of somebody else's body and that can bring up a lot of stuff. So if that's what's going on too, I think um, starting from, well, what are the things that are really present for you when you when you masturbate and have a, a positive uh, solo experience that can perhaps be recreated or incorporated uh, elsewhere? 
Yeah, those are such great questions. I want to circle back to something that we've touched on a couple times, um, this idea of figuring out what it is that you want if you haven't sexually, if you haven't you know, spent a lot of time asking yourself that question and it feels like a deer in headlights type of moment. Um, mm-hmm. Are there any questions that you would recommend for someone in that, that position who's like, wow, I don't even really know what I want or like, or I think the example you gave before is, you know, the partner asks and you don't have a good answer. Um, is there anything you would like to say for someone who's in that space maybe? Yeah. You got to journal it, you know, yeah. you got to, you got to break out the journal. You got to sit down, give yourself a, you know, 15, 20 minutes to let your mind wander and think about what makes sex good for you. You know, um, I think that's a really good question to, to ask oneself and reflect on the times when sex really did feel good. And I'm, I'm even talking about like time of year, you know, like what was going on? Was it summertime? Were you on vacation? Were you, um, feeling really free and loose? Cause you had a couple sex on the beaches and pina coladas. Like what were the things that made that particular sexual experience really good for you? Um, and really focus in on, on all of those kind of, um, tangible facts about the situation? Um, Was it with someone who you really connected with on this deep level friendship wise, and then it like morphed into this sexually charged experience? You know, what was that all about? Um, I, when I work with clients, I have an assessment, which is called the situational sexual desire assessment. And we, we go through and it's, it's cute because I use the little like snowflake emoji and the fire emoji. So you kind of like rate yourself of different situations that you've been in that either excite you or totally cool you off in terms of desire. And so I have a, a bunch of, of those for people to, to think about because I do recognize that not everybody is sitting around thinking about this all day mm-hmm. and um, maybe have never even been afforded the opportunity to talk about it with their partner. Like, oh, I'm, I'm more of a, a stress sex person or I'm, I really can't think about sex when I'm stressed out. Um, yeah, so really think about what makes sex good for you, when it is, how it is. Think about all your five senses, what was going on. And, uh, yeah, just go from there. I love it. Oh my gosh. (laughs) This is so much good advice. Um, (laughs) the last question, um, I guess sort of Q and a style ish, uh, this wasn't someone's question. This is my question, um, that I want to ask is advice that you have for couples that have dramatically different sex drives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's tough. Um, my advice varies depending on the factors, that are revealed during the session. Okay. Um, yeah, this is tough. And really for me as a coach, my main goal is to dig in with a couple about what's going on with them as individuals and as a couple. In my training at Sex Coach U, we were taught that you're really working with three different clients when you work with couples. So each individual and the couple itself, that dynamic that's created, that relationship. But, you know, it's still composed of two components. So um, if there's somebody who wants more sex, how are they trying to go about getting that? And if it's the someone who is not feeling sex as much, are there underlying reasons why they're perhaps not 
feeling that at the moment. So kind of getting to the bottom of that um, while also building up some compassion and empathy, hopefully, for both parties' situations mm-hmm. and getting some understanding. Because that's that's really sticky territory um, and can be really charged, mostly because we aren't really taught how to talk through those concerns. Um, and so when we are faced with a rejection, when we try to initiate sex, that can feel like, okay, well, after 10 times of that, I'm not trying anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's a breakdown in communication. Um, and then of course that can lead to a breakdown in your sexual connection. So, um, yeah, my advice is to work with a sex coach who can help you identify what's, what's behind that mismatch and to figure out how you can get closer to something that feels good for both parties. Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice. Um, so obviously we've covered a bunch of different topics. Um, is there anything that feels important to you right now? It could be work related. It could be something else, um, that you'd love to talk about before we wrap up. Um, I, I, in retrospect, am feeling like, uh, you know, some of the stuff I, I feel, I am pretty open to everyone's experiences and I, I don't want anyone to, who, who was brave enough to submit a question to feel like I'm, you know, putting them down or their efforts out in the world down in any way. I want that to be very clear. I think everyone's experience of sex and dating is so nuanced that it's, it's the reason why I became a coach, right? I, I love to work one-on-one with people or with couples to suss out all those intricacies that come with really getting to know a person or a couple or a thruple or a quad, uh, whatever that relationship structure is. And, um, you know, I don't want anybody to feel like they're doing anything wrong. In fact, as I said before, there's as many ways to, to do sex, to have sex, to experience it and share it as there are human beings on the planet. And I want to really acknowledge that for the most part, we're all trying our best. And that type of perspective, I think, is really important in feeling like you can manage some of those trickier situations with people that, um, you know, a lot of people are, are vulnerable in this space. And they're vulnerable because of lack of education through no fault of their own. And they're vulnerable because they may not have been given tools to communicate uh, what it is that they want and need. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I would love to just have that be out there for people to understand that I have a, I have a perspective, but I also understand that there are so many different ways that sex and dating can be interpreted and uh, experienced. And I want to really honor that. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the anxiety that comes up when, and I'm not talking about specifically the questions that were asked, um, you know, by folks in this episode, but any of the questions that we have in this space, I feel like a lot of the anxiety around it is the maybe misconception that there is a right answer and a wrong answer, right? Like we, uh, we want to be doing things yeah. right, or we want to not mess up or we want to, and you know, the more that things are cloaked in secrecy or stigma or are told, you know, this is not a ladylike thing to discuss or anything like that. The things that like break down communication around this type of stuff, 
only reinforces the fear that everyone else knows something that I don't, that type of thing. And so I think right. like the real gift in, you know, these folks asking these brave questions and in you giving the answers that you gave, I think it it just does keep coming back to this, like you're not alone. There's nothing wrong with you. There are resources out there. There's no right answer. And sort of it's it's less about giving someone a specific answer than it is like an invitation to continue asking questions, right? And yeah. like I think sometimes that's not the answer that we want, right? Like if I'm asking for advice, I'm like, no, just tell me exactly what to do. (laughs) Just give me the plan. Come on. And yet that's never going to lead me to something that's actually fulfilling. Right. So I think like if there is a a commonality or a takeaway that I have personally from everything that you've shared, it really is that, that like skills can be developed. So just because you don't have a certain skill, whether that's communication based or otherwise right now, that's cool. You can work on it. There are people that can help. And that all of this, you know, is kind of an ongoing exploration that I don't know that we reach a point where it's like, okay, here's all the things exactly that I want. And that's never going to change, you know, that it's, I don't know that there's more to it than that. Yeah. And I think that I, and yeah, I hope that in sharing some of my experiences that, that everyone feels that I am, I am processing through all this stuff too. You know, I am out in the world hoping that I, you know, can do my best in the dating world. And I still fuck up, you know, um, I, I still am, am hit with some of these things that you're, your question askers have come up against, you know, sexist behavior and, um, you know, discrimination be, or like negative feelings being thrown my way because of an STI diagnosis. And, you know, all of these things have happened to me. All of these things will happen to me because I'm someone who is out in the world trying to figure it out myself. That being said, I think that, um, yeah, I, I really want to give people the tools to think critically about these things for themselves. And I want to give them tools to examine what it is that they want. I want women to think about what they want because that that's, that's really a, that's our God given right, you know, (laughs) to, to think about that and to hopefully act on that. And, um, so often I see that women aren't doing that. And not to say that when you do ask yourself these questions, you're going to get it. But, uh, you know, it's, it's worth like doing the work and, and the practice of allowing yourself to ask what you want and what you see your sexual future looking like. Mm-hmm. Um, it's super important. I mean, that's one of the things that I love a lot about your work and message is I feel like there's this underlying empowerment and permission or reminder of permission of like, nope, you do deserve to have everything that you want and that that's, you know, to have your needs met and to have, you know, a sexually fulfilling life, whatever that looks like for you, that these are not, it doesn't make you too much to want that. Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I get that a lot from women who are in my life that men have been like, oh, you're too much Oh, that's woman. me 100%. That's 100%. <laughs> it's like my overarching fear all the time is of being too much in every area. But that comes from, like, that's real messaging that I have gotten back from people. And so it's yeah. like, okay, how do I make my needs smaller or make it more palatable? And that, I think, plays directly full circle into what we were talking about, about, you know, sex specific, like faking orgasms. Like, oh, I better not have too much needs, right? I better not request that this keeps going because... <laughs> so much bullshit. I know. And it's hard to break the cycle because, you know, when we talk to our friends about it, they're experiencing very similar things, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's hard to break it. It's hard to break out of it if you don't know 
that there is a way to break out of it. But I am here to tell you <laughs> that there is a way. And it starts with, you know, getting to know yourself and really getting to know it like super intimately. Yeah, I love it. So I think that's a good place to start to wrap up. And as you might remember from last time, the way that we end these episodes are with some rapid fire questions that all eight guests this season are answering the same seven questions if you're down to answer seven random questions. Sure. Yes. What's one activity that you can always count on to make you feel good? <laughs> Masturbation. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> for some reason, I thought that's what you were going to say. And I'm like, yep, I'm here for that. I agree. Um, good to be able to count on yourself, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's fast forward five years and you're talking to your future self, or rather, your future self is talking to you. What advice does this future self give you for what to do right now? Mm, my future self is sitting there just looking back going girl just be patient you're doing everything you need to do don't do too much because you do that already and you think you don't do enough but you're doing way too much as it is um you already know that when you relax things happen much more gracefully and that there is a return on all of your investment and it's coming Mm, i love it Who's one of your favorite people to follow on social media these days? Oh, oh, this is a good one. Um, damn, I, I need to really think about this one. Um, I'm trying to think of an account. Oh, <laughs> one of them is kind of silly, but I do really love not all Geminis. Are you a Gemini? No, I'm oh, a Virgo. I, and I'm the, a Gemini. <laughs> I have Gemini rising. I have so Virgo I'm, rising. There you go. Oh, yeah. I am I am very Gemini sympathetic and I am all about my twin energy, definitely looking for that. But um yeah, the, this uh this account, the person who runs it is a Virgo. So I love that about them. Um they're always like hyping up Virgos. Um but the memes are to die for. Okay, I'm going to definitely check that out. That's, I've gotten a lot more into <laughs> astrological stuff lately. And so, yeah. yeah, I'm here for that. It's good. It's good. Yeah. Um, what's one thing that helps you when you're feeling really overwhelmed or stressed? Uh, also masturbation, just, but... <laughs> I was literally just going to say it's fine to say masturbation again. <laughs> but also, um, I, I think friends, you know, being able to... Uh, have a solid group around me that knows me, that knows me beyond, you know, my sex coach self and knows my heart. Um, I think that's really important. Yeah. How do you typically spend the last hour of your day, the hour before you go to bed? What are you usually doing? Mm, I love this question. Um, so I have like kind of a nighttime routine. I kind of wind down, um, overhead light goes off in the bedroom Maybe I'll watch a story or two. Um, and sometimes I will do like essential oil or incense um, before bed just to kind of like get myself in sleepy mode. Sometimes it's just like um, a sleepy blend of essential oil on my on my pressure points. Um, I'll get into bed and I do a 10-minute meditation. This started like last fall. So, you know, I'm still like new into meditation, but... I do a 10-minute uh, meditation at the moment. I'm kind of incrementally working up. Um, I started at five, so baby steps. 
And, um, and then I go to sleep and my cat sleeps at the foot of my bed. It's great. I love it. I love hearing about people's routines, whatever they are. So <laughs> good. I'm, I'm bad. that's, that's your good Virgo side coming out. I know, right? I'm like very voyeuristic. <laughs> Tell me all the details about everyone's life all the time. This is why I have podcasts this is why I'm, I'm professionally curious about everybody's Girl, business. <laughs> don't I know it. Um, so the next question is, um, same as one that I asked you last time, but, um, uh, which two or three books, let's say any kind of book, uh, any genre, uh, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you lately find yourself recommending or rereading? Oh, it might be the exact same as when we talked before, because I, I can't remember, but, um, come as you are, Emily Nagoski, I recommend all the time. Um, mating in captivity. I'm actually putting together like a, uh, kind of explore box. Oh no, the explore box is going to have come as you are. Um, but mating in captivity, I recommend to couples all the time. I'm probably repeating myself. And then I finally just finished state of affairs. Um, so, uh, that is definitely going to be a book that I, I recommend as well. So two Esther Perel books and an Emily Nagoski book. Yeah, I am a, an enormous Esther Perel fan, so yeah. I agree with you completely. Um, the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Mm. Um, I think with everything that's going on right now, meaning our current political climate, the potential for a lot of progressive policies to be ripped to shreds, um, families being torn apart, and just the ramifications of having an idiot as uh, head of our country. Um, I think it's really important to think about how, how your experience of pleasure can be political. I think for me, as a woman of color, um, having a business that is thriving where I help people have better sex lives flies in the face of everything that this administration stands for. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so for me, it's always been political. My work has always felt political. And I believe that pleasure is political. And I would love for everyone to think about that for themselves. Um, how does your enjoyment of your life challenge all the bullshit that's happening? And how can you expand that in your communities and your family and within your friend circles? Yeah, that's so well said. And I like this idea too of how can you support other people in the pursuit, pursuit of their pleasure, whatever that looks like. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And their pleasure might just be enjoying the fact that they are treated humanely. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think, I think that that's a really fantastic um, place to leave it and a great action step. So what's the best place for people to find you and your work? Maybe you could give um, just a little rundown of how people can work with you right now. Like what are you currently offering? Um, and then uh, maybe your favorite way to connect, like if you have a favorite social media platform or something. Absolutely. So people can read about my work um, at myeshabattle.com. It's M-Y-I-S-H-A-B-A-T-T-L-E.com. And there you will find information about 
my sex coaching, my dating coaching. And for listeners, I am happy to extend a 20% off um, promo for your first session that you book with me. So I, I love that I've become a part of this community and I would love to support the development and, and growth of it in any way that I can. Um, so that is my, my offering today. Um, and social media, I have a lot of fun on Instagram. Um, I have a weekly Wednesday poll, which is cute. And I do some series that are cute and funny and thought provoking. Um, and that's at Myesha Battle. So you can check me out there. I'm also on Twitter at Myesha Battle as well. Um, and I write for Ravishly. So um, I, I do post on Instagram when I have a new article out on Ravishly, which is a feminist online magazine. I write about sex and dating. So um, check that out too. I will put links to all of those things in the show notes. And that's incredibly generous of you to offer a discount to this community. One last question about your work specifically, because I think that this is a question that folks might have if they've never worked with any kind of coach before. Um, Mm -hmm. Is it uh, like it has to be a certain length or a certain number of sessions? Do you do single sessions? Like how does that work for people who are thinking, oh yeah, I would love help like banging out this one issue or doing something like that. Is it kind of like a customized situation? Yes. So I do work with clients on a one-off type of basis. In fact, with the dating coaching, sometimes we can get a lot done during a session and you have two little follow-up checkups with me um, for dating coaching. For sex coaching, you can do a one-off, but what I found in the almost three years that I've been doing it is that four sessions is usually really good. So I have a package for that. Um, That's already discounted. So I think I will have that excluded from the 20% off. But um, yeah, so if you want to do one session with me, see how it feels, and then maybe do a package, that would be great. Um, But within about four sessions, people are in a different place and thinking differently and having a great time. So I'm a huge um, fan of coaching. I'm like, yep, yep, let's, (laughs) sounds amazing. It's high impact. And I think in terms of like comparing it to therapy, which I love, um, I, I think that there can be a lot done in, in a smaller period of time than people might think. Yeah, I think so. That's absolutely been my experience. I've had some coaching sessions where it was like literally two or three sessions and I felt whatever the thing was that I wanted to get resolved or think through yep. was like, okay, cool. Got it done. And as someone who is efficient and is wary of <laughs> like extended long-term commitments, that's been incredible for me to be like, oh yeah, we can do intensive work in a short amount of time. And you know, that's enough to at least move to the next step. Yeah. Thank you so much for asking that question because I do get it quite frequently. And um, just so folks know as well that I I am based in the Bay Area, so I see people in person, but I also see people virtually via Skype and Google Hangouts and all that fun stuff. Yeah. That must be neat to be able to work with people from all over with this kind of stuff. I love it. Yeah. So good. Um, Well, as I said, I'll put links to everything in the show notes, but again, this was amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nicole. Such a pleasure. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Travis. Hi, Travis. Hello. You ready to answer some random questions? For sure. My favorite question first, what are you totally obsessed with right now? 
Oh boy. Uh, lately I've been obsessed with reading everything I can get my hands on about the continental divide trail. Okay. Say more. <laughs> Why? Um, so my cousin and I are loosely planning a bike packing trip on that trail next summer. So we have been kind of having a lot of fun talking to each other and plotting about what we're going to do and all the fun stuff and like reading everything we can get our hands on. So he just ordered all of the maps of the different sections and sent me my own copies. So I've been able to dive into those, which is pretty fun. Sounds like you're preparing really far in advance, more preparation than I did for the PCT. So good for you. (laughs) (laughs) Looking forward to it. Um, That sounds really fun. Uh, Next question. When it comes to money, what's one thing that you purposefully don't spend much money on? And then on the flip side, what's one thing that you feel like is a totally worthwhile splurge for you? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I think one thing that I probably don't spend as much on is eating out just because we cook so much ourselves and like, we're always trying different stuff. Uh, the flip side of that is sometimes I think I wish that we did like, there's always like a new restaurant you want to go try or something like that. Um, it remind me of the second part, something, um, something that is a totally worthwhile splurge. Oh, a worthwhile splurge for me is like anything experience related. Like if there's a band in town that I really want to see or a sporting event I really want to go to, I like, I feel like the experience and the memory that I make is totally going to be worth it. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Um, if anything were possible, what's one of your big dreams or fantasies? Oh, wow. Uh, well, if I stretch really far, like, like I would totally love to be one of the people like, on the shuttle going to the moon or like on the trip to Mars, like put me out there. Like if money was no object and I could go do that tomorrow, I would totally do it. You can have that. I could not be less interested. <laughs> if I ever get the opportunity, you can have my spot. How okay. about that? Excellent. <laughs> nope. No. Um, what's one thing that you would love to do between now and the end of the year? Ooh. Um, between now and the end of the year, I would love to start a new business. Oh, okay. And anything more you want to say about that? Well, it's, uh, so I'm very interested in like getting involved in like solar and renewable energy, but like trying to kind of dig down and like determine how that's going to fit into like a business that I can start is a big challenge right now. And I'd love to solve that challenge by the end of the year. Would this be obviously something local here in Bend? It would. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we'll see if I can make it happen. Well, by the time I get back from the PCT, I expect your full okay. business plan. To Excellent. Have <laughs> come an, up, over for an dinner, update tell for me you. About your whole yeah. It's amazing. Um, last question. What's one specific thing that you wish people were more open and honest about? Um, I think if people were more open and honest about things that they were struggling with, like whether that's money or relationships, like I think people tend to like gloss over that or feel like they should hide it or like put on this like outward appearance of like everything is totally fine when it's not. And then you would, if everyone was kind of more honest about that, we would probably realize that we were not alone. And like a lot of people are sharing the same types of struggles that we all share. Yeah. I think about that a lot. I feel like people tend to be honest at the extremes. Like if things are like completely falling apart, it's kind of most of the time you have no choice, but to be honest about that. And I think, you know, same thing if things are like incredible, right. But there's so much like to what you're speaking to that's in between that, that it's like, those are the daily things that we hide because we either feel like shame around them or, you know, and that's the type of stuff that once people start giving an actual answer to like, 
how are you? Not just like, I'm fine. How are you? Right. right? That it's like, well, this cool thing happened, but I'm bummed about that. Like right. there's always more than one thing going on. Like you one area dive of your a life little deeper than right, surface layer can yeah. be really great. And something else could feel really challenging and something else could feel scary. And yeah, I completely agree with you. I'm just having more honesty. And like, then as the listener, like holding space for that, like, sure. right. Like if you're going to tell me a bunch of stuff and I have to be fine with, right. Like with yeah. that. So yeah, totally. Um, so you are a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you are one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season for which I am super grateful. And I would love for you to share two things. One, why you decided to support the show. And then if you have a favorite thing about our community or just since you've joined in general. Sure. Well, I love the podcast. You do a great job. So thank you for making the podcast. Um, And I just think it's really cool to be able to support friends that are doing important stuff. And uh, I just, the part I love about the podcast is like all of the different perspectives that you get like on the show. So it's just kind of fun to hear all of, all of the different people and different subjects that you cover. Um, so for me, it was just important to support that because you're creating that and it's out there for consumption. So, uh, definitely support that. And the part about the community that I like, um, definitely love like your newsletter updates. You kind of get like a little behind the scenes information, which is cool. That's um, everyone's favorite part. It's funny. <laughs> like people are like the Friday emails I subscribe to. There are people that totally. don't even listen to the podcast that are like, I do this for the emails. I'm like, okay, cool. I get the Friday <laughs> emails. Yeah. 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 Look forward to that in That's the inbox hilarious. for sure. And, uh, the book book club list is cool. Like I obviously haven't read every book on there, but I always love getting like book recommendations from people so I can add them to the wish list and, and get to them when I can. Yeah. It's all the pressure of choosing a book that lots of people are going to read <laughs> yeah. in a good way. It's I mean, and you're going to get some feedback on it. Yeah. Tab, but yeah, it's awesome. Um, it was funny sidebar story i remember when um did you join first or did carrie join first uh i don't remember i think maybe carrie did i think she did too and she's um also on an outro for this season your wife carrie for context and um i remember yeah i think you joined after her and i was like you guys don't you don't have to have two payments coming to me from your same hustle and you were like no i listen to it too like we're gonna support you individually and i was like that's literally the kindest thing i've ever yeah we have like we definitely have listened to it together but we also like listen to it individually on our own like doing our own thing so (laughs) you guys are the best yeah um So thanks so much. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much that support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Perhaps we can even record a future outro together like this one. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together.